0: Have you ever found yourself talking to a Christ follower, someone who says that they follow the claims of Jesus, that they live according to the Bible, talking to them and find yourself thinking, this 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 person is so illogical, they are so arrogant, they are so unloving. Have you ever been there? If you think, no, I've never found myself talking to Christ follower and thinking they are illogical, unloving, and arrogant, then be careful because you might be the person who other people are talking to and thinking this person is illogical, Uh, unloving and arrogant. And there there, there, there are lots of reasons that we don't become Christ followers. There are lots of reasons that can hold us back in our Christ following. Some of them we're tackling in our Alpha course, which is going for week three now. And if you get online this this week uh, before the next session, you can catch still most of the course. It's an excellent course and it answers questions like Christianity. Is it boring? Is it untrue? Is it irrelevant? And uh, you get to decide when you go on the Alpha course. And uh, we talk about objections like that. Today, I want to talk about something that holds us back or maybe holding you back from following Christ more closely. And that is that the claims of Christianity can seem so illogical, can seem so so unloving and can seem in fact so arrogant in so many ways. And I don't think that Christianity is irrelevant at all and I hope you'll find that as we go through this text together. We are traveling through the book of Acts, the story of the first church. We're in Acts chapter 4. Last week we saw how Peter and John they healed a man at the uh, gate of the temple. The, the gate was called Beautiful and uh, this guy, he hasn't walked for 40 years and he's up on his feet and running around. Peter preaches a cracker of a sermon to the people who are standing around and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get going. Jesus Christ, we come to you today and we ask that wherever we are on our spiritual journey, far from you, feeling close to you, feeling opposed to you, feeling loved by you, Jesus, thank you that we come at your invitation, that we are welcome. And God, I pray that as we go through your word and hear stories about your followers, that you'd answer our questions, that you'd help us to see you more clearly. And we pray this in your powerful name. And everyone said, Amen. Prayed in the name of Jesus. And in fact, the title of this message today, I'm so excited about it, is No Other Name. We're in Jerusalem at somewhere in the 30s A.D. Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. Remember they're preaching in the wake of this miracle that's happened and they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And this is a group. There's the captain of the temple. He's an interesting guy. I don't have time to tell you about him. There's the priest. You probably have some idea of who the priests were, but I want us to zero in for a few moments on the Sadducees. I want you to watch the Sadducees today because the Sadducees were a lot like modern day Nairobians. If you're from a different city, I would bet that they're people just like the Sadducees in the city that you are living in. Let me tell you about the Sadducees. The Sadducees, three things about them. The first is they were anti-supernatural. That that means that they didn't like to hear talk about resurrection or talk about angels and, and demons in and the spirit world. They weren't into any of that. They were anti-supernatural. Does that sound like the kind of person who you might meet if you're walking through the streets of Upper Hill or Westlands or downtown Nairobi? Anti-supernatural people. The second thing about the Sadducees is that these were politically connected people. The Sadducees uh, were well connected to the Romans. They had more political power than anyone else in Israel at that time, apart from the occupying Roman army. And because of that, they were loyal to the Roman government. They loved to maintain the status quo because they were politically connected. But lastly, and the third thing about the Sadducees is the Sadducees were the political rulers of the time. They had political clout and they were wealthy. They were the ones who owned all the land in that time. Does that sound like anyone who you know? They wanted things to stay just the way they were. And in the middle of all this come Peter and John healing a man and then preaching. And we pick it up in verse 2. The Sadducees and the priests and the captain of the temple guard, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead captain of the temple guard. It's his job to keep order in the temple. He was second only to the high priest. He comes and he doesn't like crowds gathering and listening to unofficial preachers. And the priests come along and they see rival preachers in Peter and John. They're greatly disturbed. The Sadducees come along and they're not happy because people are talking about the resurrection. And the Sadducees, they're the professional preachers of the day. And they're thinking, no, 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 we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't want anybody talking about people coming back from the dead. So what do they do? Verse three, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Verse 4 says, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Day of Pentecost, preacher's first sermon, 3,000 people responded to the gospel and the claims of Jesus got baptized and added to the body of Christ. Here we see between then and now, another 2,000 people have come to the faith. This thing is unstoppable. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. John Alexander, I've got no idea who they were, read read, read lots of commentaries, no one's got a clue, but I want us to zero in on Annas and Caiaphas. They were kind of the joint high priests at the time and they were the same people who presided over the trial of Jesus and his torture and execution. Just a few weeks earlier, they had overseen the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. And now they hear talk, people talking about this same Jesus. So they had them kept in jail overnight to cool off a bit and brought in to stand before this council that's actually known as the Sanhedrin. A group of 71 people, high priest in charge of it. They had Peter and John brought before them they often would confer in a semicircle. They'd have put Peter and John right in the middle of them, apparently, with the, the, the healed cripple standing right next to them. And they began to question them, saying, By what power or what name did you do this? It's a great question, I love that question and uh, I wish that I live my life more in a way that made people ask questions like this. I, I, my, my, my hope, my prayer for us, for every person, every Christ follower who is listening in on this. I wish that we lived lives that made people come to us and say, by what name or by what power are you doing these things? I, 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 I love the fact that they, 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 they were living the kind of life that attracted questions like this. And I want to encourage us to, 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 to be local churches that are, are, are making people ask questions like this. By what power, by what name? One tribe, we can do this because the same spirit that rested on these men on this church is the same spirit that rests on us. One of my favorite quotes about the church, what it means to be a Christian is by a Welshman called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he often would say that we, the followers of Christ, he says that we are not saved, we're not rescued merely to escape hell, but we are rescued to become a people who will astound the world. Followers of Christ, people of the Spirit of God, we have this upon us. We have this in us for people to come and say, how do you do that in the marketplace as God raises up modern day Daniels and modern day Josephs to answer the deepest problems of our society and culture, to, to live in a way that makes people say, how did you, how, how did you parent your kids like that? Or how did you hold your marriage together? By what power or by what name were you able to do these things? Friends, if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in us, today. We've got to live lives that astound the world. God let it be. <laughs> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, said to them, rulers, elders of the people, if we have been called to account today, <laughs> called to account for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, <laughs> that's what all this is about, <laughs> and are asked how he was healed. I just love the clarity. In Peter's speech, he says then, "'Know this, you and all the people of Israel. "'It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, "'whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, "'that this man stands before you healed. "'Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, "'which has become the capstone.'" Salvation is found in no one else. Does that sound exclusive to you? Arrogant? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter says, you want to know what all this is about? It all comes back to the person who you crucified a few weeks ago and God raised from the dead and his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth it's all about the name and there is no other name like this name and he 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 he, he opens up who Jesus is through this incredible Old Testament quote, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. He says Jesus, you can think of him as being like a stone. He's a stone that the builders rejected on the one hand, and he's the stone that is actually the capstone. What do each of those mean? Well, Jesus, he was rejected by men. He was despised. He was, he was tortured. He was, he was mocked. He was, he was crucified with a sign above him saying, this is Jesus, the so-called King of the Jews. He was, mocked, despised, and rejected by men. And actually, the Bible goes one step further and it tells us that on the cross, as he took your sin, as he took your filth and your shame and your guilt upon him, the Bible says that on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, was rejected by God the Father. That's why he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? That is incredibly relevant if, if you've ever been rejected, if you've ever felt the sting of rejection. Maybe you're a high schooler, maybe you're a middle schooler, maybe you are well into your 50s and 60s. But it's a rare human who hasn't experienced the sting of rejection and to know that there is one who's experienced that sting and who's able to walk with it through you, to walk with you through it. It's also incredibly relevant. If right now in your life, maybe you're at a place where you are actually rejecting Jesus. if that's you, I want you to know that Jesus never rejects you. Please keep on listening. Please keep on pursuing truth. Jesus is the stone who was rejected. And that stone who was rejected also is the capstone. I I might be losing you, let me me explain what's going on here. There was a kind of parable, a story at the time of builders who were building a, 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 a temple or a building and as they were building it, they saw a stone, a funny shaped stone and they thought, oh no, we're just gonna put this to the side, we're gonna reject it, it's no good for anything. And as they carried on with the building, they came, to, they came to a point where they realized, actually, that funny shaped stone, the one that we rejected, the one we thought has got, got no place in our building, actually, it's the capstone. It's the most important stone. It's the stone that, that, that holds the whole structure together. And maybe Jesus in your life, he's been the one who's, who's just funny shaped and you go, there's no room for him in your life. What, what, how's he gonna fit into all of this? and Peter would put it to you today, scripture would put it to you today, I would put it to you today, my friends, that maybe the stone that you have rejected is actually the cap stone the foundation stone the one that that on, on which everything else in our lives rests in fact that may be part of the reason why this christianity thing hasn't worked for you quite the way that you would like it to Is sometimes we come to jesus and say hey you can be a peripheral stone you can be one of the the, the outlying stones but actually jesus only works as the foundation stone as the capstone the stone that goes in and everything else Fits around that and not the other way that's, uh, that's That's the only way. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Jesus was the rejected stone, but he's also the capstone. And uh, I I love this bit. Forgive me if I get just a little bit excited because you see, Jesus spoke about a stone in one of his parables. He told a story about a vineyard owner who had let his, his vineyard out to some tenants. And then he sent one and he sent another of his servants and they were rejected and beaten until the story goes that this vineyard owner decided to send his son. And his son was rejected by those vineyard tenants and killed. At the end of telling that story, Jesus quotes the same scripture. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Why am I getting excited? I'm getting excited because Jesus is actually making a pun over there because he's told a story about the vineyard owner and his son who, and that son is actually the stone who was rejected. And you see in Hebrew, the word for son and the word for stone are actually very similar. The word for son is ben, so Ben German means son of my right hand, and uh, 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 the, the, the word is Ben, and the word for stone in Hebrew sounds almost exactly like it. The word for stone, the word for son is Ben, the word for stone is Eben, or Eben, Eben, and, and, and those two words, there's like a play on words. And Jesus tells a story about a vineyard owner and his son, his Ben, who's actually the stone, the Eben, there's this play on words. And this play on words takes on a whole new meaning when hundreds of years ago, there was a prophet by the name of Daniel who was interpreting the dream of the most powerful man in the world. And it's a dream that involved a stone. And I, I would love to tell you the story. Please go back and listen to, um, we preached through Daniel chapter two some months ago, but Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And in that dream, there's a there's a statue with a head of gold and, and then lower down, it's made of silver and then it's made of bronze underneath. And then the feet are made of, of iron and clay and they're kind of mixed in and then in that dream the bible says in that dream there's a stone not made or carved out by human hands and that stone comes and smashes the statue that all those kingdoms represented by those different metals, the Babylonian kingdom of gold, the Medo-Persian kingdom of silver, the Greek kingdom of bronze, the the Roman kingdom of, of iron and clay, all of those kingdoms crumbled while one kingdom, one king, one name rises above them all. And that stone is also the son who came in the time of the Roman kings, of the Roman occupation, and he smashed the other kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom is gone. Meet a Persian kingdom, half of you had never heard of it. The Greek kingdom gone, the, 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 the Roman kingdom gone. But there's one kingdom that is still advancing across planet Earth, taking people from every tribe and tongue, not by force, but by love and by a vision of an eternal kingdom with a king on the throne throne who is good and loving and died for our sins that son on the throne is also the stone and his name is only one name and that is the name of Jesus he is the capstone not just of your life but of history I love this. I absolutely love this. This, 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 this rejected stone is also the capstone, but this capstone is also the stumbling stone. Peter, he's writing a letter years later. And in this letter, he says, now to you who believe. So I know that some of you listening are believers. You're so welcome. I know that some of you listening might not call yourselves believers. You are so welcome here and online. Please keep come, keep on connecting with us online. But Peter, just for a moment, he says, Hey, just for a moment, I want to talk to you, those of you who are Believers, he says, now to you who believe, the stone is precious. How do you know if you're a Christian? Is Jesus precious to you? Has he become more precious than anything else? But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And First Peter two eight, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus the rejected stone is also Jesus the cap stone. And the stone is the sun, and this the this, this stone is also a stumbling stone. And we we, we, we stumble across, we we, we we stumble when we meet Jesus or we stumble on the stone in a couple of ways. We stumble on the stone when we, we Look for better stones and we stumble on the stone when we reject the stone. Those are the two things I want to talk about as we come in for a landing. We stumble on the stone when we, when we're tempted to look for other stones, other things that in other names in which we can find salvation. Peter said there's no other name. And, and, and we're tempted to say, no, 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 I, I, I've got another plan for my healing or for my rescue or for my salvation or for my success or for my security. Where are the places that we can look? And and when we look at the places, we're actually stumbling. Well, one of those places is religion. We wanna make our good behavior and the things that we do, the basis upon which God will accept us. And whether you call yourself a Christian, and that's your plan, or a Muslim, and that's your plan, or a Hindu, and that's your plan, or an atheist, and I've just gotta do enough good things and everything's gonna work out okay. All of those are doomed for failure. One Christ follower, his name is Charles Spurgeon, lived uh, a couple of centuries back. And he spoke about trying trying to, to get saved through his own good works, through his behavior. I love what he said. He said that I found, Spurgeon, I found, that I could not be saved by good works for two very good reasons. First, I had not got any. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly if I had any they could not save me do, do you understand what Spurgeon is saying he said get to heaven get on God's good side by good works well number one I don't have any good works and number two even if I did good works if you read scripture and understand Jesus and understand God they're not going to get you on God's good side Now, Spurgeon was a pastor and he said My, I, I don't have any good works and he writes in the same, the same sermon he, he writes now, have you had this experience yet He writes, I I discovered that my very best best actions were sinful, that my tears needed to be wept over because they weren't good enough, and that my very prayers needed God's forgiveness. (laughs) Spurgeon realized that God's standard of good works is here, and we all fall short of the glory of God and his standard of righteousness. We can be tempted to look to religious systems. We can be tempted to look to political systems and political parties. We can be tempted to look forward to, to, to science and education and knowledge for our rescue, for our security, to make this world a better place, to give you a better life. Friends, if you've learned nothing in the last 12 months of this pandemic, you should know that don't look to any political system or any political party or any method of governing, be it democracy or dictatorship. None of those could protect us from this pandemic and stop it from sweeping across the globe and taking millions of lives. None of them had the answer. The Sadducees love to look to their religious systems. The Sadducees love to look to their to their political connections and, and the, the, the political direction things we're taking. They love to look to their, to their own education. That's why they speak about Peter and John as unschooled, ordinary men, because they believe in science and education as the answer and much reading. And even the reading of scripture isn't enough. You're not saved in the name of scripture. There's only one name by which we are saved, and that is the name of Jesus. So we stumble when we're tempted to look to religious systems and political systems and 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 education and science systems and money and power. But we also stumble when we're not just looking in other places. We stumble when we come to the stone, the rock of Jesus, and we say, "You know, what? I, I I I can't take this no other name but Jesus kind of thing because that is illogical, that is unloving, and that is arrogant." And I just want to talk about. I want to talk about why it, it is far from illogical, it is far from unloving, it is far from arrogant to say that there is no other name but the name of Jesus by which you and I can be saved, the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Number one, on the, on the argument of illogical, sometimes people will come to Christ followers and will say, look, this talk of there only being one way to God, that's just absolutism and there are no absolutes. No absolutes, no Jesus only, no I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Everything is relative and everything is fluid. There are no absolutes. Now, now, That may sound logical, but there's nothing more illogical than the statement. There are no absolutes. If someone comes to you and says, okay, um, there are no absolutes. this This is how you should respond. You should say to them, are you absolutely sure about that? Because there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. It's saying there are no absolutes, absolutely. And if they're absolutely sure about that, well, then that is an absolute. So this whole thing of there's no absolutes in this world, there's no truth. Just find your own truth and everything's relative and, 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 and no, 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 no. Those are all absolute perspectives. Don't discount the claims of Christ because they are. Illogical or absolute, because believing in an no absolute is just another form of absolutism. Second objection people have is that this, this 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 claim of there's only one way to God. Can't you see how arrogant that is? that you're saying that Muslims are wrong and Hindus are wrong and atheists are wrong and, and, and every other religion is wrong except those who call on the name of Jesus. Do you realize how arrogant that is? And then people might tell you the story. They might say, you know, the, once in India, the, 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 the people came into the Raja's court and there were, there were four or five blind men and there was an elephant in the court and they'd never seen an elephant because they were blind men. They they stumbled across this elephant and one of them got a hold of the of, of, of the side of the elephant and said, oh my goodness, how 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 flat. The elephant must be like a wall. And another one grabs a hold of the tusk and says, ooh, how sharp. The elephant must be like a spear. And then another one grabs the trunk and says, ooh, this, the, the elephant must be like a snake. And another one grabs a tail and says, no, 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 I think it's a bit more like a rope. And another one grabs a leg and and says oh how, how how round and tall the, the elephant must be like a tree and the raja seeing the commotion explains to the blind men and oh, no, no, all of you are just seeing a part of the truth none of you's got the whole truth none of you should be so arrogant as to think you've got the whole truth each one of us just has a part of it and it's only when all, all those truths come together, when all the world religions come together, that, that we might get a picture of, of, of who God is. Now, that sounds, that sounds like a humble correction to the arrogance of Christianity. But Leslie Newbigin and Tim Keller and others have, <laughs> have addressed that concern, and they, they put it this way. It may sound humble to say, well, No, no, no. There's the, the you know, we're, we're all just blind men groping around for the truth. Each one of us only has a part of it." And Keller, commenting on that story, Tim Keller in his excellent book *Reason for God*, he says, "How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant, unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant?" <laughs> Hella continues, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the other religions have do you, do, do, do you see the arrogance there you're saying no no no, we're all blind men but i can see it because i can see the whole elephant you're all blind but i've got the whole perspective of the whole elephant that's the same arrogance it takes to say oh all these world religions they all just sing a part of it but actually stepping back i can see that all of it actually is just bits that everyone's seeing and they all fit together because i can see the whole thing Christianity is not illogical Christianity and the claims of Christianity are not arrogant, and the claims, the exclusive claims of Christianity are not unloving. People come, they, 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 you, you may feel, you know, isn't it just an unloving person who would say that there's only one way to heaven and his name is Jesus? Isn't it an unloving God who would say the only way to approach me is through my son, Jesus? Isn't that unloving? And I love what R.C. Sproul said. R.C. Sproul said people complain that the Bible says there's only one way to God. And R.C. Sproul says, Do you know what? I'm just thankful that there is any way to God. And he made that way through the death of his son because he loves you. We stumble on the stone when we look to other things, religion and philosophy and education. Don't let those things be the ground of your existence or your security. We stumble on the stone when we reject the claims of Christianity because they're illogical or arrogant or unloving. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, verse 13, they were astonished, the the, the Sanhedrin, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. God let that be said of us in the coming week. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They called Peter and James and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, This is a great place to land this sermon. <laughs> Judge for yourselves. You've seen the claims of Jesus. Whether you're a follower of him or not, that challenges every one of us. Judge for yourself how you will respond. Peter and John say, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. (laughs) After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was miraculously healed was 45 years old. I don't know whether you, you, where you are on your spiritual journey. Maybe you haven't been convinced about this vision and beauty of the person of Jesus. And if that's you, you're not convinced yet, I want to encourage you, keep on logging, logging in, keep on tracking with us, and uh, keep on investigating the claims of the man called Jesus and his followers read the book of Acts for yourself, read the Bible for yourself and consider these incredible claims. Maybe Jesus was wrong about everything. It's possible, but so unlikely. Maybe he was right about everything. We only ask that you to approach that question with an open mind. And maybe you are already a follower of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you've seen him as the stone who was rejected so that we could be accepted by God, you've seen him as the capstone around whom everything fits and everything makes sense. If you've seen him as the stone who is the son, then there's only one appropriate response and that's to worship him. So right now, wherever you are, I'd love you to join us in worshiping Jesus together. Worshiping him because he's got the name that is above every other name and the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's worship him together.